Hey, before we get started, did you know that you can get continuing education for this podcast? Just head over to academy.flightgrit.com to find out more information. Now let's get on with the show. If they had less than 30 minutes before of chest compressions, before they got put on the pump, 100% survival. Welcome to this episode of the Flight Crit Podcast, your place for pre-hospital emergency and critical care transport education. In this episode, we sit down with Dr. Zach Shiner of the ED ECMO Podcast to talk about ECMO CPR and how it's changing the game for cardiac arrest resuscitation. We sure hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast, and if you want to find out more about what Dr. Shiner and his team are doing, check him out over at edecmo.org. Now let's get on with the show. Uh, so kind of as we get started, tell me a little bit more about yourself, your emergency physician at, uh, in San Diego. Um, you've been there for a little while and then kind of helped be one of the, one of the directors or co-directors, if I'm not mistaken for this eCPR program. Yeah. So I'm an emergency physician. Uh, I'm a community doc that, uh, graduated 14 years ago and about 11 years ago. No, let's see. I guess it would have been one year after I graduated from residency. So 13 years ago, started thinking, hey, you know, these cardiac arrests that come in, they were not doing much for them. Same stuff we've been doing for 40 years, and maybe we could do something different. And so we looked upstairs and there was this technology called ECMO that they were doing in the ICUs. And we said, hey, we can do that. And uh, asked around and talked to our CT surgeons and they said, yeah, go for it. So we ended up, uh, I put it together like a little proposal after talking to a, a lot of ER docs and actually universally the ER docs that I talked to said, you're crazy. What do you, what do you <laughs> this is ridiculous. But, um, but thankfully actually one of the docs, uh, Billy Mallon, who's one of the, a very famous ER doc, uh, he, I took him aside and he's, he's been a great friend of mine. He actually was one of the main reasons I went into emergency medicine in the first place. Uh, I asked him and he's like, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. You guys should totally do it. And so we kind of pushed forward after that. And, uh, and we did our first case and it was a massive success. And so after that, we kind of got the ball rolling and had a number of other cases that well, some went great and some didn't go so great. And so we had learning experiences and that opened up this whole idea of we need to tell other people what we're doing, which opened up the podcast. Uh, and then, uh, after that roast, we said, man, we could, we need to train people. We need to show people how to do this. And that opened up the, the conference reanimate, which has been, so ED ECMO is a podcast and then reanimate is the conference. And both those have been great successes and very fulfilling for us, uh, because we've now been able to train people all over the world and started, I don't even know how, how many different ECMO programs throughout the world. And I, I saw you guys, that first successful story you had, uh, what was it, 10, 12 years ago, the guy was having, I think, an occlusion of the LAD. And just to see him walk out of the hospital with no neurological deficits, I mean, that's that's awesome. And that was, I think, your first patient, correct? Yeah, it was a huge paradigm shift. I mean, even after we cannulated him, uh, I went up and talked to the wife and said, I'm sorry. Like we tried this, we screwed it up a whole bunch of different ways, but, uh, we, it took us an hour. It was 69 minutes before he got onto the pump that time. Okay. And we, I really thought there was no chance that he was going to survive neurologically. 
And he did. And so the paradigm shift was, hey, this people can survive these. And and actually, if you look at this most recent Denmark paper, maybe they can survive much longer than even what we're thinking right now. So this is this is a change from what we had thought before, where we said, I mean, you you see this all over the literature, uh, three minutes, right? If they're down for four minutes, oh, they're dead. Like, don't even worry about them. And then it went to the idea of, well, maybe we could do it at 15 minutes. And now, now we're talking about hour and a half downtimes wow. people walking out of the hospital so that's that's amazing before yeah. we kind of get into the whole procedure sharp and correct me if I'm wrong you're at sharp memorial in san diego correct correct sharp is pretty unique where you guys it's the emergency physicians actually cannulating because i i've i've kind of looked at you know i, I saw minnesota's doing some great things and you know internationally are doing some awesome things but i kind of think it kind of varies between um, you know, intensivists, cardiothoracic surgeons, guys that work in IR and stuff, but you guys are pretty unique that your ER docs just rocking it out. That's awesome. And that's pretty unique to sharp, correct? So I, I would say it's unique. I would say each of the places in the world is unique. I mean, if you say Minneapolis, they, they have two cardiologists that, you know, roll around in a truck with cath lab in it. That's unique. Like you're not going to find that. You're not going to find cardiologists willing to do what Jason Bardos and Dimitri Yiannopoulos do. Like they, they just, they are so sold out on this. And it is such a, a huge uh, advantage and blessing to the ECMO community to, to see these guys show what can be done in ideal situations. But is it reproducible? That's the question. The same thing goes for CT surgeons. Awesome. Like they can come in, they have the experience with how to run these pumps in the OR, but they're not there. So who's going to cannulate them when, when the person comes in in cardiac arrest? Right. And so uh, there are advantages and disadvantages with the with the emergency physician uh, utilization as the primary cannulator and initiator of ECMO. The advantage is that we're there. There's sure. somebody there all the time. Uh, the disadvantage is that if you try and train 40 ER docs to cannulate, you're going to get a couple patients a year at most. And right. so can you really develop the skill set to do that? Uh, and is that the right plan? And that's what we're trying to work out. Paris has got an even different philosophy. Like, let's go out in the field. I, I take, saw that. Take Maybe. anesthesiologists, right? Yeah. ER docs and anesthesiologists, and not even do it the same way, right? They do this modified cut down thing. So, um, like, we're learning. And that's that. that is what I really think is our value added in this podcast is that we pull together all these ideas, we pull together all these people. And we say, let's figure this out. Let's let's see what the best way is, and uh, and hopefully we can come to some um, agreed upon way to move forward with this uh, throughout the world. And I correct me again. Where you guys are doing is you guys have kind of a nurse driven, where the nurses are kind of priming the pump, sending it up, getting it ready. Whereas I feel like in the past if you're in the OR or maybe an IR, you got a perfusionist kind of rocking that. And then maybe it goes to a nurse or an RT to watch in the unit, but that's kind of awesome that you guys are having nurses come down, I think from your ICU and prime it and get it ready and everything. Yeah. So I would say this is one of the areas that this community feel has landed upon. Like the the direction is clearly going towards nurse led uh, ECMO teams. Uh, well, I should say non-perfusionist led ECMO teams. Perfusionists are few and far between. They, ha- they have um, 
They have obligations in the operating room the next day. And so if you're putting somebody on it two o'clock in the morning, their whole next day is ruined. And, and so that model has some significant downsides. And I think most of the world is moving away from the model of using perfusionists perfusionist emergently uh, for these cases. Some places are using nurses like us. I should say many places are using nurses. Some places are using RTs as their initiators of ECMO. Uh, and I don't think there's a huge problem with either of those two models, as long as you can keep adequate training for, for all the people involved. Okay. So let's kind of talk about the, the patient population, because I, I think this is so cool. So what gets you, you hear a 911 call, you hear an arrest coming into Sharp. What gets you excited? I mean, what's getting your feelers up? Like, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get the machine out. We're going to get rocking. You know, is it witness arrest, you know, bystander CPR within 10 minutes, um, refractory VFib, VTAC? I want to know what gets you being like, okay, we might be doing this. Let's get the team rolling. Right. Yeah. So this is this is an appreciation that's even more complex, right? If you're trying to train 40 ER docs just to be able to cannulate, like the appreciation for who should be included is 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 very sophisticated and mostly that's because our literature is not ideal we have we have a number of different places uh offering up their data and we're looking at it and we're saying okay does age really matter does witness arrest really matter does bystander cpr really matter does time to initiation really matter and so each of these factors um we're trying to decide how important each of them are okay and so, you know, most recently we had even big dilemmas on whether this thing worked at all. Sure. And thankfully, the arrest trial and, and Jan Blolovec out in Prague have shown that, yeah, you know, it really it doesn't just work. It really works like it changes outcomes significantly, um, probably more than any other intervention we do in all of medicine. Wow. If you really took for if you really look at absolute mortality benefit. But which patient population is best and <clears throat> this is unfortunately not a medical question it's an economic question okay if you're if you're if you want to save 10 percent of your cardiac arrest that would have otherwise died there's a price to that there's a price with icu beds there's a price with mobilization resources if you want to save 40 percent of them if you want the, the the survival rate from your intervention to be 40%, you're going to save far fewer, but you're going to have less death. And so, it, uh, unfortunately, that that is the reality, is this is an economic decision. Sure. That being said, I think many of us in the world are are looking at survival rates that, that we want to keep above 20%. Okay. Okay. And, and hopefully we can even get, I, I think when we have, iterative change in how we do operations and sophistication of each uh, facility. So for example, our, our ECPR uh, out of hospital cardiac arrest, neurologically intact survivorship for this year is right under 40%. Wow. <clears throat> and we, yeah. And we have a, a very broad inclusion criteria compared to most people. Okay. So, so that is, it is showing that experience matters. Sure. So that that's a very long uh, or very long segue to your basic question. But the things that get me really amped up: yeah. witness arrest, okay. bystander CPR, shockable rhythm is better than non-shockable. But a lot of PEA cases will survive. And if you listen to, I think wow. Scott's 
Scott's thing, the asystole. I don't, I still believe that there is a subset of asystole that we should be cannulating. Wow. But, but again, shock lower than witness, uh, bystander CPR. Age is, you know, it's a tough one. It's, I think we have many survivors that are 75 plus. But if you want to, if you want to have an improved survivorship, then we're talking about people less than 70. The the Netherlands, which is probably a very key place for your audience, which is doing pre-hospital helicopter driven uh, throughout the whole country. They, I think, their inclusion criteria is less than 60. Or is it? Less, I think it's less than 60. Is their inclusion criteria okay. age age less than 60? So that's going to eliminate a lot of people. Okay. Um, anyway, those are the things that get me amped up young age, witness arrest, bystander CPR. Oh, and then low flow time. So low flow time, meaning the amount of time that they're getting chest compressions. Okay. So if that, that time in the Minneapolis study, if they had less than 30 minutes before of chest compressions, before they got put on the pump, 100% survival. Wow. Jeez, that's amazing. Jeez. Like these arrests that we would have almost every one of them pronounced, right? 30, 30 minutes, like who's doing chest compressions for 30 minutes on cardiac arrest? Nobody. Well, they're getting a hundred percent of those people walking out of the hospital neurologically intact. It's amazing. That's so, that's truly amazing. And in their data set, they have for every minute past 30 minutes that they delay, it's a two and a half percent survival deficit. Okay. Wow. So, so you're just looking at if you get from 30 minutes to an hour, you've just decreased it by, um, yeah, a huge percentage, 75 percent or whatever. So, with your with your paramedics, then in your community, you know they know you have the center. Are you teaching them more? Because it was always it's always a stay in play. It's like what well, we can do in the field. Well, we're going to do in the ER. So let's let's work this arrest correctly. We all use ACLS. Um, and even some pre-hospital guys have um, ultrasound now and stuff, so they can really determine asystole or not and all that. Are you kind of telling these guys like, hey, if you're shocking V-fib and it's refractory and you maybe get, deliver one shock and we're staying in there, let's go. Or, you know, how are you kind of telling these guys like you need to bring them to me within 10 minutes or something? So great question. And that's that's an important consideration. We all are amped up. We love ECMO. Hey, let's go put everybody on ECMO. But the last thing you want to do is harm your patient. You don't want to decrease their chance of survival. And there's some, there's some period of time that we're, I think, getting better and better at finding where that time is. Some period of time where the stay in play no longer makes sense. Okay. That the advantage of doing more shocks on this patient is more risky more deleterious to the patient than just putting them in the ambulance and driving lights and sirens to the hospital. Okay. Of course, that's in a system that you have an ECPR center. So if you're driving to a hospital and they don't have ECMO, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you decrease the quality of your resuscitation when you put them in the back of an ambulance. And, so, and I, yeah, sorry, go on. So um, currently the models that most people are employing is two shocks. So they get two shocks and they're already deciding after that first shock that it's time to start packaging up. Okay. Two shocks and get going. So you, have you done some cannulations um, of asystole? Like let's say it's a PE and it's asystole. You're still cannulating these guys and obviously having some good results. 
or yeah, PAARS, but, excuse me, PAARS. So PEARS for sure. We can't, we've got tons of survivors in PEARS. I mean, PEARS secondary to pulmonary embolism. I mean, that's just a great patient. That's their coronaries are open. They're oftentimes young, healthy people. So, you know, you're not talking about the baseline EF of 10%. You're talking about the, you know, young, healthy person that was walking down the street and just happened to go on a flight and take some birth control. You know, like these, these are healthy people. So huh. PE is a, is an overall great patient population for ECMO. Okay. The one downside and people will cite this. Uh, and I think we're still trying to tease this out in the literature is do chest compressions actually benefit people in PE arrest? Okay. Meaning if the PE is big enough, then they're not going to actually get any forward flow, even with chest compressions. So do they have this hypoxic brain injury? Sure. Okay. So that, that would be the, the downside. But overall, the patient population is just fantastic uh, for, for ECMO. So uh, PE arrest for sure. The asystole, the, the dilemmas in the asystole is that you don't know how dead they are. So VF, great patient population, right? They have, they got a, a, maybe a culprit lesion. They they were healthy a couple of minutes ago. Um, can we just get them to the cath lab and open this up? So they go to asystole, right? At some point they go to asystole and it's it could be at the hour mark or it could be at the six minute mark. And so if you find that patient that's in the six minute mark that went into asystole, that you just happened to arrive right after they went from VF to asystole, that's a great patient population. Like that's the patient you need. And so the question is, how do we tease out those asystole patients so that we can, we can include them? And so in our studies, we have had, uh, we have one big patient that was an asystolic arrest that, that walked out of hospital. She was a pH of of greater than 10. Wow. And she was a DKA, uh, yeah, just, you know, hyperkalemic arrest, also a great patient, right? You know, you, you fix the potassium and you give her a little support and fix the potassium and then they can do great things. So, so there is a patient population that would benefit. How do we tease that out is tough. One of the ways you, that is being currently used is using pH and lactate okay. to, to not only decide how dead they are, but also to judge the the quality of the resuscitation between when they had their cardiac arrest and when they get to you in the hospital. Okay. So these patients that come in, I'm, I'm curious about this. Is it primarily VA ECMO? Because I, I have this idea <laughs> and I haven't done much ECMO. I've done no eCPR, but when you're crushing these chests and you're, you're really flooding these guys and stuff, I see a candidate for VAV ECMO. So are you guys doing both starting them on VA and then being like, okay, look at their PAO2 and being like, okay, now we're going to add that on or how do you start that? Okay. So VAV or some combination of arterial and venous support um, does have uh, advantages in many of these patients. Okay. They're probably it, it, VAV or you know any kind of cannulation where you have a oxygenated part of blood, oxygenated blood going into the venous system. Sounds great, right? It just sounds like, oh, that's just the way to go. Why don't we do this on everything? <laughs> but the problem is trying to um, manage the amount of uh, pressure support they get versus the amount of oxygenated blood going in the venous system. So it's, it's actually a pretty complicated thing. And there are probably other ways, at least initially, to manage what's called North-South syndrome, where the patient is 
on VA ECMO, but not getting enough oxygen to their coronaries and to their carotids. Okay. Uh, actually, we just had one last week. I had a great case. I'll share it to you. Okay. Right so North-South syndrome, imagine that the they did just get chest compressions for an hour. Their lungs are beat to death. Sure. And they're getting, their heart is, it has native blood. So it's pumping, but it's pumping deoxygenated blood right into those coronaries because that's the first takeoff on the aorta. Okay. So we judge this by doing a right radial AVG and we see if they're hypoxic, then all right, that's that's no good. And what we did last week was we saw that they had North-South syndrome. We increased their ECMO flow. Okay. So we made took less blood through their native circulation, which means less deoxygenated blood and let the machine do all the work and we corrected the the north south syndrome and that patient actually is going to go out of the hospital pretty i think any day now wow yeah it's amazing yeah so um so there are other ways to do it I, I think your question though leads into another category which is are there cases where we just do vv ecmo right and maybe just to explain to the listeners so va ecmo is you put a cannula in the the vein always we're going to have some cannula in the vein uh, usually the femoral vein and then we put in VA ECMO, we put the second cannula into the femoral artery and we push blood retrograde up the aorta to perfuse the coronaries and carotids. In VV ECMO, we don't need the pressure support. So they're not in cardiac arrest. They still have a beating heart. All we're trying to do is either oxygenate their blood or take off the CO2. And those cases are actually really awesome saves too. So we've had a couple of them. One, one of them was a bad anaphylaxis. So a patient doesn't need, they don't need blood pressure. They just need someone to give them some oxygen. Right. Uh, and probably for a short period of time. So we had an anaphylaxis to peanuts, awesome case, pH 7, 6.7 after intubation, couldn't get the guy to exhale, you know, just all kinds of bronchospasm. And uh, we put them on pump VV ECMO. So we took off some CO2, we gave them some oxygen and an hour later, the guy's fine. So yeah. amazing case. Second VV case that we've had was uh, an aortic dissection. So the aortic dissection is gone through the root of the aorta. So it's back. The He has no basical, basic uh, forward flow. So all this blood is piling up into his left ventricle and he's flooding his lungs but he still had actually enough forward flow to, to still have some pressure. So all we did was we put him on VV ECMO, gave him some oxygen, and then um, he gets taken to the operating room. They fix his aortic dissection and walks out of the hospital. I have to say, when I listened to one of your speeches about the backup airway was VV ECMO, I was like, that is the coolest thing because in EMS, you know, we're going to go ahead. We got this sick asthma guy you know, obstructive physiology, you know, you're going to innovate them and it's not, it's going to go South. Like you said, you're pushing on his chest, you're doing these crazy IDE ratios and it's still not working. And, you know, in medicine, the backup airway is the crike, but to think about just cannulating here, ripping off that CO2, giving them back oxygen. And these guys are like, I'm good to go. I mean, that blew my mind just being like, I cannot even imagine these guys that could get this ECMO and just save their life because you know, those are the scariest patients, right? These obstructive guys that you do everything in your power not to put a tube in there and it, it happens. And when it does, you know, they're kicking your vents, butt, they're kicking your butt and you're doing everything you can, but 
I, I, I think that's remarkable. That's that's very cool. It's awesome. So this is the, this is the wave of the future. I mean, we are only just the, t- the tip of the iceberg as far as the utility of ECMO in this world. Now, there's so many different different interventions and inter- uh, ways that we could even utilize it more. Uh, and these cannulas. So we currently have these huge cannulas that we use for for VV ECMO and for VA ECMO. We're talking 21, 25 French cannulas going into the femoral vein. <laughs> For for CO two removal or oxygenation, you don't even need those that size of cannulas. Okay, you can put smaller, shorter catheters in, and this could be, uh, you know, like a more a very standard procedure that that even medics could do in the field if we if we got to that point. It's like a run of dialysis at that point. You just clean them out, and they're good to go, and excavate them, and everything. That's that's awesome. So that's awesome. the extension of that would be um, would be. Uh, emphysema COPD patients. So they need some CO2 removal. Super easy. You know, why, why would we intubate someone for that? Just stick a cannula in them, clean out their CO2. They're good to go. And you don't have all those weaning procedures and problems associated with, with trying to get someone with COPD off of that. Okay. I I'm getting a little bit off topic because I, I have more questions, but I, I wanted to talk about the PE specifically. I feel like in a lot of practice, the the PE is that 100 milligrams or whatever your dose is of that lytic. For you guys, obviously, I can imagine a murder scene if you're giving TPA and then you're going to cannulate this guy in the ER. So is that kind of your practice? Whether or not the PARS is from that, you're like, we're going to cannulate him first, and then you get better results where you, you do not need the lytics, and maybe you're going to IR for a intravenous more so or intraarterial? It's a great question. This is we really want to look at the literature on this. The literature is not good. Uh, I mean, as far as like the robustness of this of the studies, but um, current data, um, well, current couple studies would suggest that that TP. I mean, um, ECMO alone is a reasonable plan. So you're on heparin, so you'll you'll have some time. Sure. Or uh, ECMO plus embolectomy. Okay for these massive ones. ECMO plus TPA might be, might have some disadvantages. Um, I'm selling, bleeding is a major problem, regardless of whether you give TPA or not. Like that's just, that's just a part of the deal. Right. Um, and that'll be, you have, and in these eCPR cases, this is a, this is a cardiac arrest on top of a major trauma. Sure. Cause you just got chest compressions for an hour. I don't care how you did it. If you did it with a mechanical chest compression device or you did it manual, like oh, yeah. there are spleens and livers and broken ribs, and then a fair amount of cardiac arrest are from uh, intracranial hemorrhages. So the, the advantage of going to a CT scan is also one of the, the dilemmas that we should talk about whether we should do that before we go to the cath lab, but it's specifically in the PE case, probably thrombolytics make less sense. Okay. Interesting. It's, it's so different than I love it. It's just such a new way to look at things. And it's, it's so cool. So once you get these guys cannulated, um, I feel like you're, you're cannulating them and then you're, you're moving, right? Either you're moving to IR to look at the heart, to look at the lungs, you're kind of getting them going. Dr. Shinar, are you, it's, it's awesome that you guys are cannulating these guys. Are you following through? Are you like, I'm going with you guys or does, you know, are you sending the nurse to watch the machine or a perfusionist? How does that work once they're rolling up to cath lab? Uh, great question. So, so yeah, we, we are going oftentimes to cath lab if they're the FRS or if we think that it's a STEMI 
uh, on post EKG or pre EKG. Uh, for IR, we've actually utilized them far less than we used to, okay. mostly because our cardiologists, now that we just do this all the time, they're, they're, they're all adept at putting in that distal perfusion catheter. Uh, I do think that distal perfusion catheter is an important early step. And when we start looking at around the world, which programs have just really great outcomes, a lot of them put in the distal perfusion catheter fairly early. You talk about this ischemic burden that occurs if you have a, a, a leg that's not getting well perfused, that is the exact opposite of what you want for someone that's in cardiac arrest. They're already going to have this, these apoptotic cytokines, all this bad milieu that's coming through. And if you're just increasing that with a gangrenous leg, it's no good. So in, in some in some parts of my mind, I think that maybe even the distal perfusion catheter is more important than the, the cardiac catheterization as far as initial steps. Wow. And, and for our listeners, the distal catheter, because what we're doing is we're taking blood retrograde perfusion into the coronary arteries up through the carotids, but we want to make sure we're still getting perfusion to those distal legs as well and helping that perfusion down there as well. Correct. Yeah. So there's, you only have to worry about one leg. The, the arterial catheter is short enough where it doesn't go past the iliac uh, branch. So your whatever cannulas, whatever side you have your cannula in, that is the side that you're going to want to put your distal perfusion down the the legs because you're pushing the blood opposite up the leg, opposite of what you would usually get in your native circulation. Okay. When you're getting these guys in on VA ECMO, I think this is an interesting question. Some people wanted me to ask this. You're doing CPR. You're putting in this catheter. You cannulate them. They're on VA ECMO. Do you still see a reason to be doing compressions because you have the pump at this point, you're actually in the blood you're moving the blood. Can you just say, okay, we're done with compressions. He's on the, he's on the pump. Let's go. So we do, we do say that you can stop compressions once we're starting the uh, starting ECMO. But the caveat to that is that just because you have ECMO flow does not mean that you have adequate perfusion. Okay. And so that that's a really tough thing for people to swallow. And, and I, I'll tell you, I fall into this trap as well. So it's 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 totally reasonable. But um, you have ECMO blood that is flowing into the patient, let's say at three and a half liters per minute or four liters per minute. And your brain just says, okay, that means they, they're good. But they may be so vasodilated or they may be so volume depleted um, that they are not actually getting an adequate blood pressure from that. Okay. And so very early on, we will put in a right radial art line for art for actually for the pressures. It doesn't matter where you put it in. We put it in the right radial because of the, the North South syndrome thing that we were talking about earlier, but you get a pressure. And so after that, you need to then consider whether you need to give some blood, give some fluids, give, start some pressure pressers. Uh, and just so that sort of get a concept of this in Paris where they don't have pre-hospital arterial tracings they will empirically start pressers hmm. and they will empirically give blood because they know that these patients are going to be hypotensive even with adequate ECMO blood. Huh. So even being on pump, we still need to add whether vasopressors or fluid to get that perfusion throughout to really get that, that perfusion you're looking for. Okay. So, so yeah, so stopping compressions, reasonable because first of all, compressions don't do that much. But the, the, the trick is don't assume that they have adequate blood pressure just because you have ECMO blood flow. 
right? So we're not just putting them on, you're not just putting them on the machine and like, we're done, he's saved, everything is good. There's a lot of work to be done moving forward. And if you look through our, our podcast, you'll see the progression of that. So at the beginning, I mean, we were just so ecstatic to get somebody on the pump. Like this was not even on our mind and somehow they survived, right? You know, (laughs) we don't know this physiology stuff, but now we've become much more sophisticated. I think our outcomes have, have shown the the benefit of it. That's awesome. Are you, um, obviously for your data, I know you're following up on these guys, but are you, are you going in the ICU and checking on these patients and helping out with the machine or is it kind of, you know, up to those intensivists at that point? Early on, we were there all the time. And, uh, and, but we've now actually, we've had a really cool last six months uh, in the sense even beyond six months ago, we, we have been training all of our ICU docs and, and they are, they're stellar. We have just a stellar group of ICU CT surgeons, cardiologists, just a great group, That's awesome. very collegial as well, which is, which is one of the key part, parts to a successful ECMO program. Right. Um, and so yes, less we're, we're managing, the, managing them less so in the ICU now. And, and, um, the, 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 I think that the other kind of main point here is the nihilism, right? In, invariably, there's going to be a nihilism that's in the hospital about who survives and who doesn't. That's what intensivists do. That's what neurologists do. They they need to assess the ICU to uh, to decide whether someone's neurologically salvageable or not. Sure. And this is a paradigm shift. And so changing that culture, saying no, they're they're not neurologically devastated yet. You don't know that. You need to give them some time. That's a that takes that takes some explaining, but it also just takes some time for them to see patients survive. And so one of the one of the other factors that we see through uh, throughout the world on patient or places that have good outcomes is that they own their own patients, right? In Minneapolis, the cardiologists say, no, "You're not touching this guy. <laughs> they're, they're mine. Do not sure. anywhere close because I'm not going to neuroprognosticate this patient for several days." Sure. So in, in your hospital now, I can imagine, and I don't know this, but I'm asking that in hospital arrest might be some of your best patients because you know, the last downtime, you probably have great CPR happening. Are you guys going maybe to the floor? Let's say there's an OB arrest, whatever it might be. Are you going and like, Hey, we can cannulate this guy It's probably a great, you know, we already know his etiology. We know there was a witness arrest and we can help out. Or is that maybe something you're thinking about? It is, it is interesting how different inpatient uh, physiology is from outpatient. I, I think that's one of these things that, that uh, it's just a, it's a fascination, right? Because the, the good side, like you just mentioned of in-hospital arrest is you, you know a lot about them. The bad side is the reason they're in the hospital is they probably got some poor protoplasm. Okay. So an EF that starts off at 10% right. is not going to 50% at day five after ECMO. Yeah. So those are, those are problem patients. Now the OB, the one that, like you mentioned, like an, uh, uh, an amniotic fluid embolism, like great patient, great, huh. great patient. Um, but some of these chronic players just got out of, you know, their 16th bypass surgery. Um, yeah, right. those, those can be some problem patients that you really have to think before you say witness bystander CPR age less than 70 shock rhythm. Yeah, but right. they they are a cardiac cripple at baseline. And that's amazing because I feel like 
you know, it's such a positive and negative, you know, their last noun time, but you also know all their history and the ethical and really like, yeah, I can put them on ECMO and probably save them. But how long is he going to last on ECMO versus 911? This guy just comes in and maybe family's not there yet. And you're like, well, you know, he looks healthy kind of, I mean, he looks like a pretty good guy. I mean, let's give it a shot. And then the wife comes and tells you, you know, maybe he's, yeah, his EF is 12 and he's had 20 stents or whatever. So it's kind of the good and the bad. I feel like there. Absolutely. And I mean, I've, I put somebody on ECMO that had, that was DNR. Wow. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it was a fail. So, and it was just, it wasn't on, it wasn't on purpose. It was just, we didn't have the information at the time. Right. And so, yeah, you, you hit a very important point, which is that pre-hospital information is so difficult to obtain all of, I mean, many of your listeners, I, I, I um, sympathize with you that it's just that the jobs that you have is incredibly difficult. Uh, and I can't even imagine what some of these scenes are like. I, I've been able to go with Paris in Paris. I've gone with them for pre-hospital ECMO cases on quite a few occasions. And that's just like a, that's just a touch of what you guys all experience with, with surroundings and, and you know, family. I, I just can't even imagine how difficult it is for you all. So I, I thought it was really interesting. I was listening to you speak about, you know, these inner city guys, when they're working these arrests, it takes them forever you know, to get to a facility and maybe they're not the best candidate for an eCPR because it's all, you know, like you said, timing is a constraint and we're, you're learning more and more how, how great the outcomes can be. But do you see in the future then there's teams? And I know that you said uh, Paris is doing, France is doing this, but going out to these guys and just doing the cannulation and then taking them in versus the in-hospital side of it. Do you see that moving that way? Or do you think the in-hospital is still the way to go? It's, it's a great question. And there are many places where this is now going on pre-hospital. So we should probably talk about them because they're probably immensely interesting to your, your listenership. Yeah, so definitely. the country of Netherlands just deployed. They're actually in the process. So I think if by the end of this year, they'll be 100%. But they have a, they have a goal to reach their entire country with helicopter-driven pre-hospital ECMO. So they, fly, they get a 911 call. They get in the helicopter, they fly to wherever they are, they cannulate them in the field. And, and that was about um, equality of care. The, the, the government said, hey, you guys can do this. Just make sure you take care of everybody. And they're like, well, that's, a, you know, that's an impossible <laughs> task. Well, no, it's not actually. They, they've done it. So, uh, so that makes sense to them geographically. Okay. In Paris, it makes sense geographically because you can't get the patient to the hospital fast enough. Like in New York City, like a pre-hospital ECMO program makes more sense than an in-ED uh, ECMO program because you just can't get people into there. Right. Now, does it make sense in San Diego? Our traffic actually isn't that bad. Right. Uh, Minneapolis, so they're doing pre-hospital ECMO. In, well, they're doing it in the back of a of a semi-truck. Wow. And and <laughs> that that is... An extension, so that that is like right now the 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 area where we're seeing okay in a place with not bad traffic already has a really great ECMO system. Right. Does this make sense? Right. Uh, we are actually in the process of setting up resuscitation centers here in San Diego and have for years been considering doing pre-hospital ECMO. Uh, and when we start talking about equality of care, like that's a factor. Do we do we fly people to the border? So we we are on the border of, of Mexico, and we have we have sparsely populated areas 
which would take a lot of resources to cover the entire county of San Diego, if, if that was really our goal. So a lot of these are geographical considerations. The idea makes sense. Like if you can get somebody on in 30 minutes, their outcomes are really good. Wow. Are really good and so if you want to mo- if you can mobilize the, the resources organize the system then pre-hospital ecmo makes a lot of sense uh new mexico is probably the other place that we should at least mention okay they they don't have a ton of resources they're not minneapolis that has this 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 grant that that has supplied them with infinite amounts of money um but they are making it happen they have a they actually hand crank people hmm. So they they just wow. put them on the pump and start turning the knob and, uh, and pull them <laughs> awesome. into the hospital. And that system, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing right. what John Marinero and Darren Brody out there have accomplished uh, with the resources that they have. That is, yeah, that's remarkable. And, you know, because I, I think about uh, in transport, a lot of times, if we're going to more rural hospitals, we're taking patients that need ECMO. And these guys are already at that point where they're max on vasopressors, they're very sick guys, they're prone, whatever it might be. But I, I know there's programs that they're taking, the, and this isn't CPR, but they're taking the team to them, cannulating them in that environment, and then they'll transport them kind of like, we'll come, we'll do the ECMO, and then we'll get them out of here versus, you know, trying to uh, cram these guys into a helicopter on multiple drips, multiple things going versus just going there, getting it done and then transporting them. So yeah, I can imagine that would be remarkable because I think the timing is so difficult in the city from the time to 911, you know, for the ambulance to get there and to do all their assessment and then to get, you know, license sirens only do so much in the city, I, I can imagine, you know, and doing that. So yeah, I, I think that's such a cool idea. That's awesome. That is very cool. Well, that is um, pretty much everything. Uh, I, I mean, I, I could talk to you all day about this stuff because I think it's so cool. But um, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting about it. And I hope we see more of it, especially in more of these areas. And like you said, like these centers that could be put up or just going out and cannulating would be awesome. And I think the integration with EMS would be sweet because if the if the guys in pre-hospital are trained to know who is a candidate, which is sounding like a pretty broad area at this time, but they can get those teams mobilized much faster. And I can just imagine those outcomes are going to be great. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we, we're trying to figure out who the right people are, how to do it, where to do it. Uh, we our most recent uh, big or I breakthrough here in San Diego is that we trained one of our sister hospitals to do this kind of thinking like this was a, a really aggressive thing for this hospital to try and take on. And actually with just a short training of their crew, they have had a massive success. They've already had, they have 50% of their patients that they put on since March walk out of the hospital neurologically intact. And so it's, it's rethinking this idea of like, does this take a fellowship and five years of training and, and massive undertaking to, to, to train people? Or is this something that, yeah, they're probably never going to be as good as I'm never going to be as good as Jason Bardos. He's just an unbelievable leader. <laughs> He's unbelievable experience in this, but is that the right thing that there's only so many Jasons in the world. And so how do we, how do we best deploy this worldwide? And, um, it's really cool to kind of see how, how, where this direction might go. I, I totally agree. I think the skill set, if trained by someone that's um, like great, like you, a master in it, or someone that's really competent, you know, they're even talking about 
doing Reboas in some areas, like a military doing pre-hospital Reboas. And it's, and we, we had a guest on once and he was like, it is that simple where I can teach these people how to do this. It is simple as skills, knowing the right patients and then just managing it. And I was like, you know, you're, you're very right. I mean, when we do chest tubes, it's this whole thing. And I, it is when you really talk to guys that do chest tubes, they're like, you should be able to get into that cavity in like 30 seconds. And when they really teach it like that, I'm like, I mean, you're so right. I feel like I, I feel like I need like 10 years of experience, but when you do one, you're just like oh, in there. And it's like, yeah, you're right. The idea of it and just the skill set of it is, is awesome. So no, I totally agree with that. That's really cool. Um, well, Dr. Shannara, thank you so much. Are, do you have, uh, um, where can people kind of find you if they have questions about this or if they want to chat with you, um, as far as your podcast and stuff like that? Yeah, I'll give you my email. I'm always available. Um, uh, Z Shiner at Hotmail. ED ECMO is our podcast. If you want to listen, that's fantastic. Uh, Reanimate is our course. We also, um, I was the editor of the first ECPR textbook, which came out this last year from ELSO. So ELSO is the major worldwide uh, ECMO group. Fantastic organization. They just had their meeting in Boston last week. Um, But yeah, if you want, if you want to read some stuff, uh, that's a, I, I the, you know, I put it together. It was fantastic. But the main, the main thrust of it is that I was able to get the best authors in the world to to do each of these chapters. And so I think it is a, a pretty good source for looking at how to run and start an ECPR program. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, we thank you very much for your time and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Hunter. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We want to give a big shout out to Dr. Shiner. Thank him for coming on the show. And we want to encourage you to head over to edecmo.org and check out all the amazing content that Dr. Shiner and his team are putting up. That's all we have for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for spending a little bit of your time with us. And remember, education is good, but excellence through collaboration is much better. Stay safe and live well, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Flight Crit Podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>